The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. I want to welcome you to Sacred City Church. Um, We're glad you're here with us this morning as we gather as a collection of missional communities from across the city um, as we gather to sing and worship and to be reminded of the gospel and to take the Lord's Supper. My name is Sam. I'm a church planting intern here at the church, and I'm also a missional community co-leader. And right now we are in the process of testing my call as a church planter. And part of that testing is to test my uh, skills and my giftings and to develop my giftings as an effective preacher of God's word. So that's why I'm up here this morning and also uh, baby Dean can come in in a minute. So um, I'm up here for today. Before, uh, with that, I'm going to pray. We'll jump right in and uh, see what the Lord has in store for us this morning. Gracious Father, we are, we are really thankful for your gospel this morning. We're so thankful that, that you have done a work um, in history to bring about our redemption and to show us a future that is bright, a future that we can long for and we can be certain of. God, and you are, you are letting us taste that even now as we're here on this earth uh, in, in the redemption of things and, and experiencing the gospel at work in missional communities and, and experiencing um, the preaching and, and the liturgy and the, and the songs. And we get to taste that gospel, which will bring about everything uh, we're longing for and desire we're thankful, Lord, that, that you are at work, that um, while there are so many churches across the city and across the country that are closing their doors, that Sacred City is a place where you are at work, you are here, your spirit is doing 
marvelous things, and, and we're so thankful that to, to be a part of that, Lord. And, and we ask that you continue that work, that you continue that work in us and through us. And, and would you now incline our ears to you to hear what you have to say? Would you use your spirit to speak through me? Would, would you use me as a mouthpiece to proclaim the excellencies of Christ? Would you give us hearts that are eager to receive? Uh, some of us have come in from a long week and we just don't want to hear another thing about how, how bad we are or what we're doing wrong. But would you soften our hearts to receive the good news and Christ has accomplished everything for us. That there is, there is rest, that there is peace in him. And would you refresh our souls in the gospel this morning. We pray this through your son's name. Amen. Well, we have been studying our way through 1 Corinthians over the last nine months. If you've been with us, you'll know that if you're just joining us for today, uh, there are some podcasts online on our website and on iTunes if you want to check some of those out. Um, but in, our, in the, the time that we've been studying 1 Corinthians, we've learned a lot of crazy things about this church. Um, there's, there's been a situation where a young man is sleeping with his stepmother um, not cool. There's been a situation where Christians are suing Christians over petty things. Uh, other situations where people are coming to the Lord's table and getting drunk and other people are going away hungry and thirsty. And so basically the, the picture of this church is that it's a mess. It's, it's not a poster child by any means as far as what a church should look like. And so Paul is writing this letter to the first Corinthians to address all these issues. He's, he's addressing these issues so that, that they would change to do a better job of representing Jesus to one another in the church and to the city that's watching. So Paul is calling for change, but he isn't just calling for behavior modification. He isn't calling just change what you're doing, change, change the way you do this, change the way you do this, and things will be better. He's calling for a change of heart that leads to a different set of behaviors, to, to a different type of living. He doesn't tell them to do better. He doesn't tell them to try harder. He doesn't threaten them to shape up or God might not love them anymore. At best, Paul knows that these threats would bring about half-hearted change that would only fizzle out with time. And Paul knew that if he took the approach of behavior modification without addressing the heart, he would produce a congregation full of staunch moralists. And if you were to ask me back in my college years how people changed to be more like Jesus, I would have known it for sure. I would have told you, get your Bible out, find a Bible reading plan, uh, spend some time in prayer, you know, preferably like, couple three-hour blocks here and there throughout your day. That'll probably really help. Um, you can uh, serve, find, you know, go to church and, and serve, volunteer in the children's ministry, do something, be a parking lot crew, whatever, serve, or go on a missions trips, you know. And, and if you got really serious about this Jesus thing, I might say, you know, there's this thing called fasting that's not really popular with me, but this thing called fasting might help you uh, move a little bit closer to Jesus, but, but thank goodness, uh, Paul is much wiser than I. And, and so Paul is telling people to change, not by doing more for Jesus, which is what all those things are about, is about what I do for Jesus, what I can do so I can produce something different for Jesus. But Paul is telling them to be changed by what Jesus has already done for them. 
And so Paul goes on this behavior modification and aims straight at the heart. And he does this not by some sort of uh, weird emotional hype. Like he's not waving flags and screaming tongues and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. What he's doing is he's calling them to remember the gospel. Chapter 15 starts out, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Paul is calling them to remember the grace that God has shown them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And specifically in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 15, he does this by pointing to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And around here, we, we call that gospeling. We, we, we counsel and we care for one another and showing each other how the gospel applies to life. We, we show each other how what Jesus did in the past affects your future and changes how you live life in the here and now. So that's our lingo for it. But what Paul's doing is he's reminding them of the gospel. And so... The thing is, as we talk about the gospel, it's easy to reduce it down to Jesus dying for our sin. We tend to think that the resurrection is maybe uh, an add-on or a bonus. It's not necessarily essential for the gospel of Jesus dying for your sins. And when we do that, we're left with a gospel that's incomplete and really no gospel at all. As Paul told us uh, in, in last week's uh, sermon that verse 17 says that if Christ has not been raised, if there is no resurrection, then your, fa- fa- then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so this brings us to the conclusion that not only is Jesus' death good news for us that changes us, but the resurrection is also good news that changes us. But the question is how? How does the resurrection change us? How does the resurrection affect me in my daily life? How does the resurrection, if it's something that's going to happen out in the future to me, how does that change my life in the present? Well, sources say that one of every ten people in America have some, some form or variation of depression. Some suspect that this number is actually quite conservative. Depression affects people of all different walks of life, and, and it comes in varying degrees of intensity. So no matter what your race, your socioeconomic status, your gender or age, you could be susceptible to depression. And it's a condition where someone is discouraged, they're sad, they're hopeless, unmotivated, or disinterested in life in general. And in addition to that, and sometimes even on top of depression, some people, nearly 20% of Americans, live with some form of anxiety disorder. And this is living with a constant feeling of, of worry, of nervousness, or unease in regards to the future. And there are a lot of people in our culture who are all too familiar with this. They're all too familiar with the experience of depression and anxiety. And just because we're in a church doesn't mean that the people around you or you yourself don't struggle with some form of depression or anxiety. And just a couple of weeks ago, I 
opened up to my MC and told them that I was struggling with some of these things. That as my wife and I were looking forward at our future, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And, it, and that uncertainty caused a lot of anxiousness in me. And as I, as I kind of wrestled with that anxiousness, I realized that there's nothing that I could do about it. And so I was left with this, this feeling of despair and, and, and you know, some, some sort of depression that just left me unsure, it, it, unmotivated, just kind of hopeless and dark place. And what anxiety and depression, what it essentially boils down to is a hopelessness and uncertainty of the future. And the resurrection, the gospel, speaks directly into these things. The resurrection gives us a hope and a certainty that our future is incredibly bright. The good news of the gospel is that the redeeming life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened in the past secures for us an incredibly bright future which shapes and informs and enhances the way we live life now. And when I say hope, gives us a a hope, I'm not talking like a, a Hallmark greeting card type of hope that's like, hope you're feeling better. Not talking like that. I'm not talking about the hope that you have and in, in the success of your fantasy football team this week. I'm talking about a hope that is solid, a hope that is secure, a hope that is certain and true. A hope that when it faces tribulation and trial, it perseveres and it comes out on top. This is precisely the hope that the resurrection gives us. And today we're going to take a closer look at the resurrection, specifically what our bodies will be like, what we'll be like in the resurrection. And as we look at this kind of future that that Jesus secures for us as we put our faith in him, my intentions are to show you how the resurrection gives us an unshakable hope. And it guarantees for us an incredibly bright future. So would you open up your Bibles or your app or whatever you have to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, and we'll start right here, where Paul says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. This is just a little little aggressive. It's just a question, right? What kind of body? You foolish person. So Paul, this is something that, that's kind of, it seems a little elementary to Paul. Like, well, how could you possibly be thinking this? But, but the question that these people are asking is, is if Jesus is going to come back and raise all these dead folk who are buried in the ground, how's he going to do that? You know, maybe you're, maybe you're into those zombie flicks, Walking Dead and all those stuff that's out there. But it's a little bit morbid to think about what all those people might look like that have been in the grave for hundreds of years. So the question is, will their bodies be usable in the resurrection? Will, will they, what will they look like? I mean, are they going to come back as zombies and decay? And, or what will, will they look like? And so in that time, there are two primary thoughts in, as far as this, this topic goes. And, and the first belief was that there, there will be no physical bodies in heaven. There won't be any physical bodies in the resurrection. Everybody would just be floating around like a little spiritual beacon of light or something just kind of a a blob 
And, and we know that's not true because we see the resurrected Jesus. He was in a physical body. We saw that. And then we'll see in, in this passage as well. And the, and the second thought was that people would be getting a brand new body, like completely different from the body that we have in this life. So they're thinking that body is going to decay. It's going to become worm food. Then we'll just get brand new bodies completely. And, and that'll be that. It'll be cooler. It'll be better. But we also know, according to Jesus' resurrection and seeing him, in his resurrected body, and also from this passage, that we don't get a completely different brand new body. Our bodies in the resurrection will be a continuation of the bodies that we have in, on, here on earth, but only better and different. And to, to show this to us, Paul is going to give us an agricultural illustration, this, the seed and a plant. And, and I've, as I was studying it this week, I found it completely fascinating that as God created seed-bearing plants on day three of creation, he did so with the resurrection in mind. He did so knowing that man would, man would fall and he would give in to sin and he would die. He would be a seed planted into the ground. But he also had a plan of redemption and of resurrection that that body put into the ground would come up as something more beautiful than before. Man, that to me, that, that just blew my mind. I hope, I don't know. There's something about that, that, that just gives me this. It's like an embrace knowing that, that God has a plan that even at the beginning of time, he knew what he was doing. So, you know, take that for what it is, but I think that's special. Paul starts his illustration. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So he's saying death is essential for the resurrection in the same way that a seed must be Removed from a living plant to produce a new living plant. And, and there's a, a little bit of a disclaimer. People might push back on that a little bit. Because there will be some folks who are still alive when Jesus comes and brings about the resurrection and the second coming. But those people will be changed too. It's just going to be different. But for Paul's audience, the people who he's writing to here, all of them are dead. <laughs> all of them are dead. So he's saying that death is essential for the resurrection. And with the resurrection as a reality, death is a transforming event where we are changed from one type of body to another. In the same way that a planted seed transforms from one form to a different form of a flower or a grain of, or a stalk of wheat or a stalk of corn or, or a tree. And in verse 40, we see that, our earthly bo- that there, are, there are earthly bodies and there are heavenly bodies, meaning that there's a difference between them, like there's a difference between a seed and a plant. And later on in verse 44, Paul says that what is sown, what's put into the ground is an earthly body, and what comes out of the ground is a heavenly body. And because of the gospel, specifically because of the resurrection, death is not the end for the Christian but a means of transformation from one body to another type of body. And living in this reality, death isn't scary anymore. Death is no longer something that robs you of everything and leaves you empty. Death isn't the land of the unknown. Death doesn't leave you dead. George Herbert, Anglican priest, penned a line of a poem that reads this. Death used to be an executioner, but now the gospel has made him just a gardener. 
Because of the gospel, the worst thing that death can do to the Christian is to transform us from one body to the better body. So death is not the end. Death is a means of transformation. And so far, there hasn't been a lot of clarity as far as what our resurrection bodies will be like. Like, what, what will they look like? What will we be capable of doing? And we can look to Jesus and take note of some of the things that he did in his resurrected body. And Paul also can take us to verse 42 and explain some of the major differences, which are our earthly bodies. These bodies that you and I are in right now, they will die. Guaranteed. Your body will die. It will decay. He says that, our, that these bodies are weak, that no, mar, no matter how hard you train, you'll weaken with time, that you'll be susceptible to sickness, that you'll get tired. And he says that, that our bodies are dishonorable. Like There's a reason why our bathrooms have doors. There's a, there's a reason why no one wants to sit, to you, sit next to you on the plane after not showering for a week. But in contrast, our heavenly bodies are significantly better. They are imperishable. It will never die. It will never show signs of decay. They're glorious. They're beautiful. They're a sight to be seen. If you think you're having a good hair day today, Miss Selfie, just wait till the resurrection. (laughs) Just wait till that resurrection. Their bodies will be raised in power. They'll be powerful. They won't grow weary. There will be no sickness. There will be no tire. So that's, that's what we can kind of attribute to our resurrection bodies. But, but I think Paul is trying to show us something different. He's trying to show us that there's something deeper than just the capabilities and the features of our resurrected body. In verse 40, 45, I believe Paul highlights this primary difference between our earthly bodies, which we receive from our first father, Adam, and our heavenly bodies, which we'll receive from Jesus. Paul says, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That means Adam was given life. Life came from outside of him, where Jesus was life. Jesus was the essence of life. And N.T. Wright clarifies this primary difference between our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies by saying this. The present body is animated by the normal life which all humans share. The ordinary life force on which we all depend uh, in in this present body, the ordinary energy that keeps us breathing and our blood circulating. But the body that we shall be given in the resurrection is to be animated by God's own spirit. That our resurrected bodies aren't something to look forward to because of the cool new things we can do or because of features. We look forward to our resurrected bodies and to the resurrection because then we will be perfectly united with God. The Spirit will fully animate our resurrected bodies. We'll be occupied entirely by God. And because we are totally animated by this Holy Spirit, we'll no longer sin. We will no longer be tempted. We won't experience pain. There will be no guilt, no suffering. Hopelessness will be a thing of the past. Fear will be no more because those are all characteristics of our earthly bodies. And they will be left in the grave. In the resurrection, 
as we are animated by the Holy Spirit, we will have perfect yet increasing joy, peace, satisfaction, goodness, comfort. Sorry, my whiskers. Fellowship and love. All of those things will be ours in the resurrection. So that gives us, that gives us a hope for our future. That sin and all of its products will vanish and be no more. And we will be alive in the perfect reality that we are united with our God. But not only will we, will we be animated by the Holy Spirit, but verse 49 says that we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. There will be an internal change where the Holy Spirit animates us, but there will also be a physical change where we will bear the image of Jesus. And I cannot wait for that day. I cannot wait for that day. I'm young, but I am tired of my joints being stiff. I'm tired of stomach aches and headaches. I'm tired of being tired all the time. Man, I'm tired of of fighting the battle of my waistline wanting to expand while I want it to decrease. I'm tired of all of those things. I'm, I'm, I'm over the way I look. I... I don't know how you guys are looking at me right now and staring at me. I'm just over it. (laughs) And the reason that I'm over it is because there's something better waiting for me. There's something better waiting for me. And I honestly don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know what I'm going to look like. I don't know if... You know, my upwards growing arm hair is going to reverse and go downstream. I don't know. I don't know exactly what it will be. And and I'm sure if I did know, I wouldn't have the right vocabulary to explain it. All I do know is that according to Hebrews 1.3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And if Jesus is the radiance and the glory of God, and we know according to Exodus 33.20 that God is so glorious that to look at him in the face would cause us to die right now, then there is something incredibly awesome about the way Jesus looks. You, You can try to imagine it. You can try to dream it up. But even your wildest imagination will leave you short. Of what it will be like to bear the image of the man of heaven. And so coming on my final point. That we can find hope in the resurrection. Because it guarantees us. That we will bear the image of Jesus. This isn't a shaky. Maybe cross your fingers type of thing. This is as certain as a gravity that's holding me to this floor right now. As much as this whole passage excites me, as much as my imagination has been running around to see the type of things that I can kind of, that I'll be able to do in my resurrected body, what it would be like to be animated by the Holy Spirit, to not have to fight the fight of temptation, to not be, uh, be caught in my sin, to not have fears of guilt and, and anxiety and depression. The thing that, that excites me the most, gets me the most fired up, is the word shall. In verse 49, that we shall bear the image. All of this is true. It will be true. It doesn't say that we will maybe or maybe we'll kind of bear the image. It says that we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. 
This marks the future for all believers. This, if you put your faith in Jesus, this is your reality. The end of the story has been written and we know how it ends and it is a very, very happy ending. This gives us a hope. This gives us a hope that cannot be shaken because our bright future is secure not in what I do. It's not secure in in how good I am, but it's secure in Christ. Because our future is bright, our lives are informed and enhanced right here and right now. And this is unique to Christianity. Unlike other religions or, or moralism, the new religion, you are never quite sure of your future. Death is certainly approaching, but you're uncertain about what will happen. Were you a good enough person? Do your good deeds outweigh your bad? Did you follow the law close enough? Did you pray in the right direction? Did you open enough doors? Did you do enough? Did you do enough to earn yourself a bright future? Every other religion and moralism offers a false hope. It, it, offer, it does give you some sort of hope in some ways, but it's a false hope. It's not true. It's a false certainty because, because of this, that in other religions and moralism, there is no resurrected Savior. That without a resurrected Savior, your faith is futile. And you're wasting your time. And so, if, if, you wouldn't, if you don't call yourself a Christian, if you're just here testing it out, scoping it out, I want to offer this to you. If you are a believer, I want to assure you of this, that the only way to possess, possess this type of hope, this certain, this certain, deep, solid, true hope, the only way is to hold fast to this gospel that Paul is preaching to the Corinthians. And it's this. It starts off with bad news. I'll tell you that first. The bad news is that you don't deserve a bright future. You don't deserve it. You did nothing to earn this type of future. In fact, your sin disqualifies you from having any sort of happy ending. Your future is incredibly, incredibly, miserably bleak. Because of sin, the future that awaits us is full of all the things you hate. It's full of the things that depress you. It's full of the things that make you anxious. It's full of the things that cause doubt and fear. But here's the good news, that by God's grace... By his unmerited favor, you didn't earn it. You couldn't earn it. It was a gift. By God's grace, Jesus died for your sin in accordance with the scriptures. The sinless God-man completely, who is completely undeserving of this punishment was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And on the cross... He took on the full weight of all of humanity's sin. He experienced 
the most intense and severe form of depression and anxiety so that our sin could be forgiven. And then by God's power, Christ was raised from the dead to, to stamp the seal of this is true. This is, this is absolute. Christ was raised from the dead to be the first fruits of the resurrection, a guarantee of what awaits us. So that all those who would put their faith on Jesus and trust in his sacrifice on their behalf and believe the resurrection brings us into a new life would be saved from sin and from death. That we would inherit, that we would would lay hands, that we would possess this life of the resurrection that Christ earned for us. Because we were completely unable to earn it on our own. All you need to do to receive this good news is to receive it with an open and empty hands of faith. Say, you're right, I, I'm completely undeserving. Christians, don't forget this either. You are completely undeserving of this future life. Completely undeserving of this incredibly bright future. But by faith, I believe that Jesus Christ has paid for my sin. The thing that disqualifies me from that. Not only does he pay for my sin, but he offers me new life. This life is mine by God's grace. In the gospel... And because of the resurrection, death has been repurposed as a doorway from our unsatisfying earthly life to our incredibly bright future in the resurrection. Death was once an executioner. Now he is just a gardener. God, we thank you. We thank you for your power which is displayed in the resurrection of our Savior. You brought him from death to life and you have seated him at your right hand and he is ruling and he is reigning now. And as Lord, he has declared that we shall be image bearers of the man of heaven. And we thank you, Lord, that that you have created a, a means, a way in which that is that our, our future is incredibly bright You've created a way for us in Christ himself. That as we trust, as we believe that his death was sufficient and his resurrection is the new life that that is to be ours, that we would be changed, that you would be with us, that you would comfort us in those times of depression and anxiety, and that you would ultimately turn our our hearts to the gospel and see that what Christ has done is good news. It lifts us up from the pit and exalts us. Lord God, and would you you be near to those who, who are battling depression and anxiety and ultimately show them your goodness in the resurrection and in the new life that is ours in Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.